So our message, How to Be Happy, continues today. And I want to show you the first time that I saw the word happiness. Show the slide. That's right. Happiness is a warm puppy. And it led to that general series, Happiness Is, by Charles Schultz. Everyone say, ah, happy, warm puppy. As a child, yes, happiness is a warm puppy. Or maybe it's a big hug, or it's a mountain of ice cream covered in chocolate so high that you can't see over it. But Tal Ben-Shahar, referred to him last week in my message, teaches the most popular course on happiness, and it tells you, and I've spent time on an Ivy League campus, it tells you that's what they're really searching for. Tal Ben-Shahar says that happiness is this, a simple definition, but it really crystallizes it. It is the ability to experience positive emotions connected with meaning. Condense it even more, put it this way, pleasure and purpose. Happiness. The ability to experience pleasure in the context of purpose. So happiness, yes, it's a warm puppy, but in the mature version of happiness, in spiritually mature happiness, we know that it's about that movement, from just appreciating things, from just saying, I can stand back and observe, to entering into relationship with things, from appreciation to cultivation, from offering a hand, isn't that great, to extending a hand, lending a hand. That's the real, true happiness and satisfaction comes about. So let's say for you, happiness is still warm puppies. Well, I would say this. Perhaps you might find a way of saving those, or at least some of those, warm puppies from harm, or cruelty, or exploitation. That is pleasure and purpose brought together. True happiness. Also this morning I want to show you something that to me represents in a vision what happiness really is. The seed. The seed and then the flower. Go back. The seed first and then the flower. Perhaps an even simpler way to talk about happiness is this. Human flourishing. Flowering growing into what we feel we are supposed to grow into, following our call all the way into that place where we give off our beauty and our goodness and our light and help feed the earth, just like happens when that seed grows into that flower. But we know that this kind of happiness doesn't happen by accident. This kind of flourishing doesn't just happen if we sit back and wait for it. It doesn't happen on its own. Because I get asked from you gardeners, what's left out of this picture when we go from seed to flower? What else is there to bring that to full flourishing? What's there, gardeners? I know we have a few of here. A few of you here. What's there? Miracle grow. Okay. <laughs> Let's pretend we're in 1850s. No miracle grow yet. Still the old-fashioned way. What's necessary for that seed to come into that flower? Hard work. And what else? Soil, water, sunshine, rain, cultivation. That's actually one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings. One of the very things that animates who we are. We say that we believe that all of us have the potential for new life, for full life, and that this should be celebrated and cultivated and shared between and with all of us. And so we are like a gardener who strives to create the right conditions for that garden to flourish. We strive to create the right conditions for our spiritual growth. 
let all of us, all of us can go from the seed to the flower that we are intended to be as nature would have it. A universalist ancestor, they believed this down to the very core of their being. They believed, contrary to the Calvinists of their time, if you ever heard the phrase, double predestination. You know what that means? Well, let's just divide you right down the half. We'll call you the hell side and you're the heaven side. Sorry. You want to switch? You want to run over there? <laughs> well, you know, that's part of that belief, that dogmatic belief. Double predestination. Some of you are going to hell, some of you are going to heaven, there's nothing you can do about it. Got to burn down the house of your own life in order to be saved. Our universalist ancestors didn't believe this. They believed it was our right, our privilege, our duty for all of us to grow. They believed all the way back in 1803 in the first statement of universalist belief that happiness and holiness are the same thing. Happiness and holiness are the same thing. There's this great word, happification. I don't think I've ever heard it in any other context. But Hosea believed one of the great universalist preachers of the 1800s says that God's will for humanity is happification. We are on the, in the experience of being happified. Hopefully. And you know what? This isn't just good sounding theology. It's actually right. Because one of the truths that in our age social science has backed up is that people who are happy are also more altruistic, more compassionate, and people who are more compassionate and altruistic are more happy. We should have more universalists because the universalists are right, not the Calvinists. This, grandly put, is the history of the liberal religious mission put into a core, a kernel, the seed of who we are. It is to take that experience and transform it that the Calvinists and the dogmatists would tell us that this world is but a prison. Got to get out of this world. Got to escape from this world. Well, I don't know what comes next. I'm hopeful. But if life is just a matter of waiting, <laughs> waiting for what comes next, there can be no cultivation of here and now. Because the Calvinist worldview, that sinful worldview, is filled with meaning. But it's a mean meaning. It's a cruel meaning. Our liberal religious mission is to celebrate the fact that we can restore and turn this world back to that sense of original blessing to cultivate the garden of each and all of our lives. To create what a writer calls good and solid spiritual furniture. Create good and solid spiritual furniture for all of our lives. So how do we live that life of happiness? How do we cultivate the garden of pleasure and flourishing and purpose a lot of writers who study happiness said you have to go at it from this angle. Look at it this way. Study resilience. Study the experience of resilience of people who are able to, as it happens to all of us, understand that suffering, struggle, failure, part of our existence, just baked into the cake of who we are. But if we study those who are resilient, those who have the gifts of resiliency, we will understand what true happiness can mean. That when life at times sometimes wants to drag us down, that we can pop right back up. There's a name that I referred to last week in my message, and it's going to be a part of the next three weeks as well, too. His name is Martin Seligman. He's really the founder of what's called the School of Positive Psychology. Because he said really what, how psychology was founded was sort of like a secular version of Calvinism, almost, in some ways. He said, you know, Freud did a lot of good work, but he just focused on the 50% of life that was sheer misery. 
And the Freudian worldview is just that we can get ourselves to a point that we can tolerate the misery and not to live lives of not even happiness, but just get through it. Just get through it. I think that's even worse than the Calvinist view because there's not any afterlife anywhere after it's a promise that we can be delivered to. But Seligman says there's a whole other 50% of life that's about resiliency and happiness and joy. And he studies that, tries to understand what it really is. And he's talking about individual failure in this passage that I'm going to read to you. He says, individual failure in our society used to be buffeted by the large we. When our grandparents failed, they had, by and large, comfortable spiritual furniture to rest in. They had, for the most part, the relationship to God, the relationship to a nation that was often beloved, even if it wasn't perfect, the relationship to community, and very often a relationship to large extended family. Faith in God, community, nation, and the large extended family, all of these things, all of these things, if we look at the material, the data, have eroded in the last 40 years in American life. And so the spiritual furniture that we sit down into, it has become threadbare. Now, Seligman is not some Robert Bork-like culture critic. He's not a reactionary. He doesn't want us to go back to an imaginary time where everything was perfect. But he sees the data, and perhaps you've seen and heard some of this. Levels of depression are ten times, ten times what they were reported in 1960. And along with this, a more current survey even, it said that a quarter of all Americans, a quarter of all Americans have no one trusted person that they feel in a time of need they can rely upon, that they can really go to when the chips are down. And that's double, not from 40, 50 years ago, that is a double reporting for what it was back in 1985. Twice as many more people who are lonely than just over 20 years ago. And in the midst of this greater happiness, you know it still goes up? We have greater real income in the last 40 or 50 years. It's the truism that says money cannot buy you happiness. Well, mostly true. If you are scraping along on a subsistence level existence and you get a living wage, that will help you make, make you more happy. In this context, here in Chester County, one of the things I want to tell you is, by and large, if you go from middle-class existence to upper-middle-class existence, in the aggregate, that's not going to make you any happier. It's not going to make you any happier. It doesn't mean we don't want to do it, but it doesn't necessarily make us happier. Matthew Ricard, who is a Buddhist monk who also was a cell biologist before he went to study the great texts of Buddhism, tells a story of East Germany about the time of 1990 when the Great Wall came down. That was a wonderful thing, a wonderful thing to see coercive societies fall. But a strange thing happened because East Germany, of course, is right next to West Germany. East Germans started to get a taste of what life was like in the West. And so as their living style started to go up, as they started to earn more money, they took a look at those neighbors there they had, their fellow German cousins, and you know what happened? They became a lot less happy with their own lives. That's unfortunately what happens when we gauge our happiness, our pleasure, our joy, according to what we earn, or what we think earning will give us. The positive psychologists, they have a great phrase for this. They call it the hedonic treadmill. <laughs> Hedonistic. The hedonic treadmill. And think about it. What they say is we can plop ourselves right down on that treadmill and we're running and we're running and we're running and we're running. 
but we're staying in the same place. And we look at maybe what our neighbors, what car they're driving, we look at how big their house is and how nice it is, you know, sort of uh, decorated, and we say, I gotta keep up, I gotta keep up, I gotta keep up, I gotta keep up, but you know what? No movement. No movement forward. That's the hedonic treadmill when we think that possessions or money or how much we earn will make us happy. Now as humans we have the great capacity unlike that little rat or gerbil that just runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and probably doesn't recognize that they're not making any progress. We as human beings have the capacity to ask the question, is this true happiness? Is this hedonic treadmill, the rat race, in which we're always holding out till another day and another day and another day and another day, but it's like that watch pot, it never really boils. We can follow what our great sage Emerson said, especially when it comes to our possessions and even our, rea- our relationships. Emerson said, be careful what you worship, for what you worship you will become. Be careful what you worship, for what you worship you will become. And so Seligman, Martin Seligman in this contest, asked that question, why? Why in the midst of this material abundance, this material wealth, why so much unhappiness? Why so much depression? Why so much anger? Why so many broken families? And Seligman says we have rigged the game to make ourselves fail. We've rigged this game, the happiness game at least, to make ourselves fail. Our society is incredibly individualistic. Maybe some of you know that book, Bowling Alone, that Robert Putnam, the Harvard sociologist, did. He said, you know, 30, 40 years ago, people used to join bowling leagues. But now people, that was his great metaphor, people are bowling alone. And so often what happens when we fail in life or when we struggle, we also have this stress at the same time, but always feeling good. So many self-help books. Do these steps, one, two, three, four, five, and you will feel good within a week. Well, unfortunately, you know what happens when you buy self-help books? Um, some of them are excellent. But you know the single greatest indicator of whether you bought a self-help book that you will buy the next one is? That you bought one before. If self-help is truly what it says it is, wouldn't you think you would have to stop buying them? <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't work that way. Seligman says that a couple generations ago, the key story for kids, and I remember you read this one, I love it. Remember the little engine that could? We would face adversity, the little engine that could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And there's forward progress there. Facing difficulty and making forward progress, that is how true happiness comes about. But Seligman says, and again, he's not a reactionary, he says too much in our time, we stress for our kids' self-esteem. Feel good about yourself all the time. I saw a really pointed example of this a number of years ago when I was tutoring in East Harlem. I was working at a church in the Upper East Side of Manhattan where I lived, which is one of the most wealthy zip codes in all of America. And three times a week I would make that about two mile trek to completely another universe, another world, 103rd and 2nd Avenue to a small church, the Church of the Redeemer, and in the basement there was something called the Booker T. Washington Learning Center. I mean, these kids were up against it, i got to tell you. They're like, you know, Kevin Michael singing that song we just sang. They see all of it, and they know, unfortunately, in life, the way things are arranged, we don't all get the same thing. And there was one teacher there who thought it was his job, and I can understand the motivation behind this, but he would, every time he was teaching at the end of the day, give them a little self-esteem pep talk. Sort of like a little Jesse Jackson, keep hold alive kind of thing. 
And the thing is, the kids didn't buy it. <laughs> they didn't really buy it. You know what they bought? They bought the lessons of the woman who headed the Booker T. Washington Learning Center, who held their feet to the fire at times. And I could see this as a tutor. These kids, you know, our society sets them up to fail. Violence, drugs, broken families, poverty, all the whole, the whole thing, the whole thing. Where these kids got a sense of pleasure and satisfaction was when someone tested them and held them accountable and helped them along and got them moving and said, you know what? I think you can. I think you can. I think you can. You're going to experience frustration. You're going to experience doubt. But I think you can. That's when the smiles came on these kids' eyes. Not telling them, oh, you're so good, but allowing them in their own lives to show themselves that they had goodness within them. Not telling, not showing. This was put perfectly about eight, nine months ago when we were gathered for a youth spirit meeting and we were really envisioning our program. And one of the teachers in the room said this, I want our program to be based upon that our kids build self-esteem by doing esteemable things. Our kids build self-esteem by doing esteemable things. This is what every good gardener knows, that a good flower is the final result of good tending and good watering and good weeding, yes, to keep the bad stuff out and good cultivating. It is not just the seed on its own. The seed is only the potential. It's not the end result that matters in happiness. But too often, happiness in our society is about acquiring. It's about attaining, about getting there, about getting to that point where we will have what we want and at that point then we will be happy. But so often that can lead to those, you know the old song? Is that all there is? Is that all there is kind of moments? That kind of itchiness, that kind of dissatisfaction. There is a very good self-help book. It's got a great title called Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life. And what this teacher, this professor, this therapist says is that compassion, patience, peacefulness... These virtues are not fulfilled and then discarded, but they are incarnated. They become who we are and we become who they are. Because think about it, if you want to become a compassionate person, how many of you woke up one day and said, today I'm compassionate, I'm done with that. Today I am peaceful, I am done with that. Today I am loving. I have reached the goal. I am 100% loving. I am tapped out. No more loving for me. That's not the way the virtues work. It's not the way it works in our lives. They are eternal goals. Their call is such that we switch from a scarcity way of viewing life, of saying, I will attain definitely what I am, to an abundance way of living life, which is saying, I will grow into what I will become. Very different attaining things versus becoming and being something. And these virtues are supported like the gardener supports that seed becoming the flower. These virtues are supported by community, by caring community, by beloved community, where authenticity is more important than how much we make and where loving kindness is more important than what style and make and model of car we drive. This is the kind of solid spiritual furniture that Martin Seligman wishes for all people so that when we fail at times we know when we will, when life becomes difficult, 
this solid spiritual furniture we can rest in and be restored and then go out there and work hard and strive once more. This week I got a call. Sometimes in ministry you, know, you get these calls and they're sort of archetypal. The person in desperate need, in desperate need because life has just fallen apart. I got a call from a man whose wife died and she died suddenly and young and it was not in any way what we would call a good death. It was a traumatic death. And he knew no clergy and he knew no community and he ended up calling me at least because he got to inherit a little piece of spiritual furniture from the past. His dad was a Unitarian and so he reached back for that. I'm going to tell you folks, the time to reach for the umbrella is not when the hailstorm has already started. It's not when the rain is already falling on our heads and we're afraid of perhaps drowning. Now I don't judge him. I don't judge this man at all. My heart breaks for him after seeing what he's going through. And I'm just glad I'm here and Wellsprings is here and we can help him. My heart breaks for the adrift and the lonely and the people who don't have the spiritual furniture to sit down into when life becomes difficult. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? McCartney put it best. Best time to look for that sacred canopy is not when we need it the most. It is to build our spiritual furniture day in and day out as a matter of practice. This is the question I want to give you this morning. You can also find some of these other questions in all other service to help you integrate some of these messages into your daily life. But to use a financial term, stock market term, is your spiritual furniture upon which your happiness is built today, is it a highly diversified index fund? Can it stand some market fluctuations up and down and back and forth? Is it solid? Or, and be honest with yourselves, because finally you're the only one you have to tell this to, to maybe members of your family, maybe your friends, not confess it to me, that's fine, we can work on it together. Is your spiritual furniture a make-or-break stock? Is your spiritual furniture like one of those pump-and-dump emails that you get? Get it on the ground floor today, invest right now, and triple, quadruple, tenfold will give it to you back. Spiritual furniture is better as that diversified index fund. Another way to put it is, think about diversifying your happiness eggs. Don't put them all in one basket. Don't make them just about your most significant relationship. Don't make it just about your job. Don't make it upon something that you bank your happiness in the future. Diversify your eggs so that you have not just one sense of where you can sit, but a choice of places for when you need it so you can rest in your spiritual furniture. Now, I don't know how you're answering that question. Maybe a little bit of both. That would be my honest, my honest response to it. I'm getting better at diversifying than I used to be, much better. But I can tell you some good news, too. Some good news is that you're here. Some good news is that you are here today and we are here together. Because i got to tell you, and again, it's not just self-interest like come to Wellsprings and be happy. This is what the social science tells us. People who are part of spiritual community, not just spiritual, but spiritual community, religious communities, the odds are greater that you will be happier. 
And the odds are also greater that you will be healthier. I was telling someone once this, and this was an 85-year-old person, and she said, can I get five extra years in writing? <laughs> it may not work exactly that, one, that way, but the trend is this, that being a part of a spiritual community gives you some solid spiritual furniture to rest in. It gives us a different perspective upon time and how we use our lives and how we're spending our lives. A number of years ago, I was stuck in an airport about three, four hours when I lived in South Florida, and there was this edgy, anxious voice, and I always think about this guy who talked about, I mean, he had been bumped from like three flights, absolute traveling hell, it's no fun, we all know that, it's not fun at all to have to spend, it's like, you know, it's, it's like that way station, it's like that Dante's not the inferno, but it's like purgatory there having to wait in that airport for so long. But he was talking to the person in front of him, complaining in this edgy, anxious kind of way, and saying, well, I rode the elevators up and down, and I rode the escalators up and down, and then I went into the chapel, but I didn't really pray, I just sat there for a while, and then I came around, and I walked over to the other terminals, and then I went up and asked again, are they going to have my flight ready? And then up and down, and up and down, he kept saying, because you've got to find a way to kill the time. That edgy, anxious voice. Because you know what? Nothing he does is going to make that time go faster. He's just going to slow it down by wanting to kill it and make it drag. And you know what? I've got to believe that even when this guy, in his anxiety, got on that flight, he was probably saying, got to kill the time to get to the next place. Got to kill the time to get to the next place. Change one little letter and we can see the difference. What if his attitude had been to fill the time? Not kill it, but fill it. Kathleen Norris, one of my favorite writers of the spiritual life, talks about how her perspective on time and happiness really changed when she became a sometime member of a Benedictine community. She said that the Benedictines have a very healthy attitude towards time. She said, nothing ever really gets finished in this kind of community. And so as a result... You do the best you can with the time you have. And this is someone who lived in Manhattan for years and was a writer. And it was all about deadlines, deadlines, publisher, perish, produce, get it done, let's see the product. And she said it was the healthiest thing she ever could have imagined. She recognized none of us ever really finish anything. So let's do the best with the time that we have. This is the connection between time and being and happiness. It is not about attaining the end is about living the experience, living the life. Time is filled then and not a threat to be conquered. A perspective upon ourselves change when we become part of true spiritual community and take up spiritual practice and have a perspective that what we are doing here together is not finishing the race, it's running it together sometimes, yes, at different paces, but it's an eternal race. It's an eternal privilege to be able to live this life as a spiritual call that we answer every single day. Buddhist communities, they take what's called the Three Jewels Vow in some of those Buddhist sanghas, the community. They talk about taking refuge. I love that. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma, the teaching. I take refuge in the sangha, the community. This is a way of a spiritual tradition talking about its spiritual furniture. Augustine, almost 2,000 years ago now, put it differently from the Christian tradition, but I think it's the same affect, that same anxiety that's met by peace, that same worry that is met and cured by care. 
He wrote more poetry than theology. Our hearts are restless, Lord, until they rest in Thee. Our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. Now taken one way, that can be, God makes you happy. (laughs) That old sort of Calvinist God who divides the sheep and the goats. But the way I understand what Augustine was talking about, Charles Hartshorn, who was a Unitarian, had a great little book, almost a little pamphlet, and he gets right to the nub of the matter. He says, there is omnipotence and other theological mistakes. Omnipotence and other theological mistakes. He says, talking about God in terms of power, in terms of the old man, the white man, on the beard, in the cloud, arranging pieces on the chessboard. That's not the case. It's a theological mistake. It's a mistake we make when we want to project our own need for power up into the heavens. It's not something that is real. But if God is understood differently, not as the call to power, but the call to eternity, not to kill time, but to fill time, this is an understanding of the divine that makes sense to me. Because it's not something that we accomplish. It is a wisdom that we integrate. Some call this God consciousness, realizing Buddha nature, original mind. For me, finally, the words drop away. But it is real. It is a real part of our capacity as a human being to realize flow. You ever hear that term flow, like Michael Jordan out there on the court, making one after another after another at crunch time? He talks about being in the flow. Well, your flow may not be on a basketball court, and I can guarantee you it's not going to be as good as Michael Jordan. But we all have that capacity for flow, for realizing timelessness, for becoming one with eternity. We all have that within each of us. I'm talking about next week and how to be happy is how we cultivate those mind states, how we cultivate those heart states. And the hint is this, and if you've heard me preach before, you probably know where I'm going. Your ability to cultivate that is really dependent upon how seriously you take your spiritual practice. That's the hint. We'll unpack that next week. But if here, in community, we can realize the promise of, yes, taking refuge when life becomes difficult, we can recognize that there are more important things than just what we can attain and what we can have and what we can own, then more important is who we are with each other then we will start to recognize the promises of peace are real, the promises of love are real, the promises of joy are real, and the promises of happiness are real. This is what spirituality is. It is an internal state of peaceful strength connected to an external source of belonging. Spirituality is an internal state of peaceful strength connected to an external source of belonging. It's when the insides match the outsides. That is happiness. That is integrity. That is living in grace. Amen. May you live in blessing.